This podcast is supported by IFC Films, presenting Wildlife. Carrie Mulligan and Jake Gyllenhaal star in actor Paul Dano's directorial debut. Opens in New York and Los Angeles on October 19th, in theaters everywhere starting November 2nd. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Michael Koreski. I'm the Director of Editorial and Creative Strategy here at the Film Society of Lincoln Center, um, where we also publish Film Comment Magazine, which is why you're all listening. And we're here today to talk about family films. But before we do that, I want to introduce our very special guest. So if we could go around the room. Hi, I'm Lisa Ma. I'm the Head of Programming at Metrograph and a contributor to Film Comment. I'm Fariha Zaman. I'm a documentary filmmaker and producer, and I'm also a film comment contributor. I'm Cameron Collins, film critic for Vanity Fair. Welcome, everybody. Uh, we're here today to talk about family films, and that's a term that has a lot of meanings, I guess. When you first hear it, I know that when I hear it, I think, oh, does that mean like family-friendly films? But we're actually here today to talk about what a family film is. In other words, a film about a family. And there are so many interpretations of that. And um, what has what's occasioning this is the release of Hirokazu Koryeda's Shoplifters, which is opening this week, um, right here at the Film Society, actually. And we also have a feature on this film in Film Comment Magazine written by our own Elisa Ma, who's right here. So this is a bit of a, an unorthodox family film in that it actually questions the idea of what a family is. So, Elisa, could you tell us a little bit about the movie? Sure. Um, so, Coreta's uh, new movie, Shoplifters, actually won the Palme d'Or this year. Um, and you always think that Coreta is going to be nicer than he actually is. So, on the surface, you know, this is like a pretty heartwarming story of people who aren't related by blood, who come together, who they each have individually terribly difficult lives. They find each other, they find solace and home in each other. And this home consists of uh, a father, Osamu Shibata, a mother, Nobuyu, a sister, Aki, a brother, Shota, and a grandmother, Hatsui, who's played by the formidable Kirin Kiki. So the family comes together and um, what they do is they shoplift to sustain their lives. Um, they live in the outskirts of Tokyo in a place that's not meant for, uh, you know, daily life. Uh, and it's usually the father and the, the brother who goes out to, to shoplift. And this is the um, opening scene of the film. You see them um, very, um, very swiftly going through a grocery store and um, you know, they have a whole system worked out. And on their way home from that trip, they find a little girl who is shivering and she's all by herself. And it seems like she's all alone. So they bring her home and they start to nurture her slowly back to life. They find that she's covered in bruises. They they find that she's covered in bruises and um, she's starving. Um, and slowly this girl becomes integrated into their makeshift family. And but eventually um, really dark things start to surface about the mother and father. Um, and then the death of the grandmother kind of uh, tears the entire family structure apart. Um, and it becomes this very tragic tale of how the marginalized try to intervene as, you know, to, to find dignity in a society that, you know, basically sees them as being 
derelicts. Um, and ultimately, the inability to um, transcend beyond um, the tiny margin that society has um, inscribed for them. So it's ultimately a tale of heartbreak. And yeah, it, it takes a while for the film to really sink in and truly break your heart. But it's it's quite incredible what Coretta does. Uh, Coretta has been a filmmaker who's broken my heart many times. In fact, he's constantly interrogating this idea of family and what, you know, not only what a makeshift family is or what how a family functions or doesn't function, but like he, he burrows in so, so far. Like his films, Still Walking, um, which is about a family dealing with grief, uh, that's been dealing with grief for many, many years, like decades, actually. It's, it all takes place in one day when they, um, they're they doing these rituals and cooking this meal. And only slowly do you realize what it is that they're celebrating, which is the death of a son from many years earlier. Um, and Nobody Knows, which um, is probably the most similar to Shoplifters in a way, except that it pushes it into this extremely tragic place that I won't spoil for listeners. Also because you won't watch it if I tell you what happens. But um, I do highly recommend Nobody Knows as well. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a film that really had a, a great effect on me. To, uh, I know you've seen it for you as well. Um, yes, and I loved what you said, Eliza, about Correa always being not as nice as you think he's going to be uh, because his tone and his approach is gentle. There's like, yeah, there's a difference between uh, having a gentle quality and being nice per se. And that gentle quality actually means that the, that the more tragic qualities really sneak up on you and hit you that much harder. Um, And I was thinking about how I think it's difficult to make a family drama that doesn't include some sort of darkness and that tension between more gentle, the more gentle qualities of, of the relationships between people because it's people that you're familiar with, that you um, have a sense of comfort with, and with whom many quotidian moments of your life unfold. Um, but then ultimately, there's always something that simmers under the surface. Um, and I think some of the most successful films engage with that darkness. I'm trying, I'm trying to think about a family film has no darkness in it. And I, I don't imagine... Hereditary. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're, they're harder to relate to, you know? And I, I know that obviously c- comedies also exist, but it's usually... They, a family comedy is still usually held together by some sort of shared goal or... You know, there's still a dramatic element. There's a challenge in some way that right. like where the, they have to come together and either they do or they don't. Right. The risk of the family being destroyed is usually the thing that fuels the comedy. <laughs> Which I've never thought about before and now I will never laugh again. <laughs> <laughs> um, Cam, I know you've also seen Shoplifters. Um, right. I mean, I, I saw it. I haven't seen it since Toronto, but it's funny thinking back over it. I have such a keen sense of sort of burrowing into this home with the family. And for all the gentleness, I have a very specific memory sense of just how expansive it is with with particular characters. I'm thinking of like the older sister and her occupation, which actually I think I'm not going to spoil because I think it's sort of interesting to sort of arrive at it fresh. But the sort of lives that people have beyond the home. There's a trip that the grandmother takes beyond the home that's to another family that becomes very interesting for those reasons. Like whenever we leave the home, there's, there's a, just a marked sense of a change of place because we're so burrowed in with this family. And I just have a very like specific geographic, like physical sense of this home. I feel like I'm in it with them, that I too was adopted <laughs> into this family in a way that, you know, it's, it's funny. I, 
I'm always really attached to movies that give me a very specific, when I think about them, I think about the spaces. Um, and I think that's so key here, just how cluttered it is, the extent to which, you know, I, I remember thinking when I was first watching, like, is this, does anyone like own this space or rent this space? Are they homeless? I wasn't, you know, like th things that just weren't entirely clear to me at first that, that eventually become clear. And also, I mean, the first thing you see them doing is shoplifting. So you do, you, you have an immediate sense of them living outside of the system in some substantial way. Right. Is, what, what, do you think of them as squatters or do you right. think of them as an actual functioning family unit that has this home? It's actually a constant kind of weird negotiation the movie right, plays. Right, right. And I think what you're getting at, Cam, is that it, it's not just uh, because of the story that unfolds that you have that question. There's su such care put into the um, the set, like the the look of the house and even just the way that they move in it. Like there's sort of a lack of care. Like if somebody spills something or drops something, it doesn't seem to matter. And that immediately indicates that this is not a permanent space or that they don't think of it as um, some, somewhere they can be really rooted or settled. And that, that feeling of being unsettled is, of course, you know, pretty important to the, the what eventually unfolds in the movie. And and you make this point in your piece, Eliza, and really central to this family and Every family, and certainly any family in a creative film, is food. There's so much talk about food, time devoted to the preparation of food. Still walking is probably the most extended in this way. You really see like the preparation of everything that they do. But in this movie, this, uh, is it rice cakes? What is the, the thing that the little girl really loves? Well, because they don't have the ability to cook you know, an entire meal, um, they usually just do like a, a stew of some kind of consisting of whatever they could pill for that day you know and uh and so one day they had rice cakes and um this was the first time they saw the little girl come out of her shell it turns out she loves rice cakes and it becomes like this first bonding moment between her and the family a symbolic sort of welcoming of her truly into the unit um it becomes a very very moving moment um but but cooking food and eating food is is such a unit of um measure for the quotidian in Kareda's films like you think about like father like son you know the the, the juxtaposition of the rich family eating in their Tokyo apartment versus the poor family eating in their little shop in the in the nooks and crannies um, um, they delineate like habitual spaces and they become yeah just a, a unit and and they also um, express the sense of family without actually having any dialogue yeah, and it's a good point, um, going back to what you were saying, Cam, about the set design and just like the way the place looks, it is so central. I mean, it's something that you're like sort of aware of and not aware of when you watch any movie, how, how, how a film, the sets and costumes of a film. But like thinking back on all the movies that are important to me as family films, movies that I either identified with or recoiled from as family movies can be, um, I do think of like the space and, and it's amazing how that decision you know, whoever is making, like, let's, Mimi in St. Louis, right? It's a film I've seen, I don't know how many times. I think it's a perfect film. I think it's a strange, ambiguous, or maybe ambivalent film, actually, about family. There are so many odd moments. But at the same time, it's a movie I return to every year because I feel like I'm kind of living in that house, part of that family, and I can't imagine it without the way the chandeliers look, the way that cake looks on Halloween, that big, amazing, fluffy cake that they make, the way that the... Um, the housemaids, uh, the way she slices the corned beef, you know, I mean, it's just every little detail is what makes a family a family. And um, I think that's one of the things that makes a family film a family film. 
And I think also to that point, Manali is really good at that, um, creating those kinds of spaces. And I, I'm the same. I guess I hadn't thought of it, but but it's true that if I have some sort of emotional attachment to the idea of family as a unit in in a film, really what the home is is extremely important to that idea culturally, but also just in a film. I think that you sort of miss something if you don't understand if if you don't understand that connection. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, even like. I mean, before we were recording, we were talking about The Sopranos. I have a very keen sense of what Tony Soprano and, and Carmela Soprano's house looks like. Granted, also because it's like the same arrangement as my dad's house, because I'm from that sort of like area of New Jersey, which is eerie, <laughs> a, a, an eerie, eerie thing about that show. But also just like it's so particular. Yeah. And it's and it's interesting to think about how filmmakers do that. It's, it's, it's a complex network, I think, shots that really give you a sense of the home of a place. And like give you a sense of familiarity geographically that must be a really complicated thing to work out i'm curious about how many directors are actively thinking about that like thinking about our sense of the space as a part of what they're trying to do and the way that they shoot these things i know that set designers would definitely think about this but certainly I, terrence davies because he's obsessed well, yes. with making everything look exactly like the way it looked when he was a child in those homes well and there's there are a number of artists who do you know, they'll watch a movie and then try to map out the homes that are present in the film. And sometimes it can be other kinds of physical spaces. But I've noticed that the ones that people re respond to most are family homes. So, for example, you know, the, the, somebody tried to map out exactly what the Royal Tenenbaums, the, the family in that film, their apartment building would look like. And it is incredibly satisfying. And it's which is strange because the director may not do that. You know, you relate to the space in a different way and it doesn't have to be in this sort of mathematical or mapping way. Uh, you're asked to relate to the space in the way that you would in life, just sort of moving through it, understanding what happens in those spaces, what, hap what took place in this room as opposed to, well, whose bedroom is where. Yeah, and would we care thinking about E.T.? Spielberg's film, like, would we care how that weird little squishy robot thing functioned in those rooms if those rooms didn't feel incredibly real? And when I think of E.T., I think of the house. I think of the kids sitting around that table playing Dungeons and Dragons while eating pizza. You know, I think of I think a lot that about that pizza. Is. That pizza, I don't know. <laughs> Was that my first movie pizza? I have no idea. I'm pizza obsessive. Anyone well, also because the pizza gets that. ruined. Right. It's really sad. I have a very, very vivid memory of also the exterior of the house in the dark. Yeah. Um, very shed vivid in the back with the moon yes. and it's it's yeah it, there's a lot of care put into what happens in that house um and i think well that's a great family film too and just branching off that really quickly only because it came out a week earlier poltergeist which was right. also set in the california suburbs um you know we don't necessarily think maybe of horror films as family films but that movie's all about the family unit and returning to the womb almost like literally with some of its imagery um but it's that movie's so much about the space and in that moment, the house actually crumbles to bits at the end, which is well, horror films are full of creepy children. So I always think of them as family films in that regard. That's that, true. That someone's making these creepy children. <laughs> <laughs> someone's giving birth to these terrible That's children. That's true. In a sense, they're who actually are all the backbone films. of horror to me. But I guess, yeah, in all these examples, the living space becomes a substitute for the people in the family, right? And um, what Creator does so well is, you know, show the sort of he does such a good job of showing how the, the living space is imbued with not just the geography of the space itself, not just the physicality of the space and what it looks like, but somehow he makes it very evident that, you know, there's so much, so many memories and so much history and so many emotions that are specific to these characters that are overlaid onto the space. Um, and what's so moving about 
the case of shoplifters is that these are such unremarkable characters in the eyes of everybody else outside the family in the realm of the movie. But he takes such great care in showing us just how much is there in this totally transitory made up space. Reminded me a little bit visually of the space that the family lives in in The Host, um, mm. which I wanted to bring up because you the talked Bong about Joon-ho horror, movie. horror movie. It's not a horror movie. It's a creature feature. But um, I think actually, and, and and going back to the idea that there's always some sort of darkness, like a, an, a, a family film that feels relatable um, is about the tension between what works and what doesn't work. <laughs> um, and I think that, yeah, the, the, the family being put under pressure by outside forces in, in this sort of, you know, basic breakdown of what a, how a horror movie functions um, is actually really uh, a good fit. And that there's been a um, quite a bit of writing about how horror films in the last couple of years, but but this year in particular, you brought up the example of Hereditary in a sort of joking way, Cam, use uh, the horror mode to actually express things, that, you know, like f- dark forces that exist within the family to externalize things like grief or trauma. Um, so I think that, that that match really makes a lot of sense emotionally. Yeah, and you're right, because I'm also watching House on Haunted Hill right now, the series, and that's, I mean, it's it's more a family moot show than it is even a horror show. To a fault, almost. Yes, but I've heard that's get, true, but I haven't finished we have, it yet. We, we don't even have to get into that. But, but I just watched episode five, and wow. Yes, um, for sure. Um, uh, a thing I keep thinking about, uh, to Elisa's point, is, is about the moments in shoplifters when someone from outside of the home like a municipal force visits that really clarifies for me how the outside world um, is viewing what's on here and and also just how this outside world does not have access to the narrative that we have access to so there's walking into the space thinking well this is a shithole <laughs> like how many people live here how many people are supposed to be living here and who are you people um and i think that's something that gets clarified again in the end and, and there is something really just innately sad about the idea of a transitory space to me um and and the idea that you know should characters disperse in some way from this kind of from this kind of home or any kind of home um there really is no one to remember that space in the same way yeah and, and I think the it's whole fundamental. identity of a family is built on generations and history right, and right. legacy and you know in the case of these characters they won't have that you just know they won't um but Despite that, they've managed to find a sanctuary within each other, um, and it's better than anything anyone's ever had. I mean, this will not come as a spoiler to anybody because everybody goes to the beach in a Corrado um, film. Um, but at one point, the whole family makes a, a jaunt to the beach, and it's such a moving scene. Um, the mother and the grandmother are sitting on the beach, and they're just watching everybody play. And... Um, you know, the grandmother just, you know, you're expecting her to say something very heartwarming, but she she just says, you know, this isn't going to last, right? And the mother turns and she says, yes, but at least we found something in each other that something to the effect of at least we don't have unrealistic expectations for each other. And then just like that, they sort of wordlessly agree to um, continue this as long as as possible. Is it a film that that it's funny because it's such a specific, strange movie about a makeshift family. They're not related by blood, um, yet they find so much to to stay in it for, and there's so much love in the house. But is it a film that 
that we relate to. That's what I wonder. Like, do we watch shoplifters and think like, oh, that might as well be my family? Or are we constantly at a remove thinking like, well, this is kind of a, a, an inquiry into the idea of what a family is. Like, I, f- I'm, I was kind of inside and outside of it at the same time. Um, that's not a critique in one way or another. I think it makes you think about the quotidian moments of family life with renewed appreciation. I think that that what you're describing, feeling at once um, that you recognize these moments, but that the way that the characters respond to them in the in the world of the film are different because of the transitory nature of their family, because they're sort of constantly under this um, economic pressure, reminds you that their enjoyment of something that we relate to because we all get to have it um, doesn't mean you should take it lightly. Mm-hmm. Like I think that the beach scene that, that Elisa just described is a good example because nothing in particular happens. And that's why it's moving for them in the moment mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that, that nothing else is happening except that they are together in this, in this open space. There's definitely that sociological aspect. You know, I feel like with all of Coretta's films, um, there's this push and pull where, you know, he takes a distance to the characters uh, to some degree. And it, there's a, almost a sort of snow globe like quality to the way he he portrays their world. You're looking at them from the outside. But at the same time, it's making you so aware of, in this case, like what artificial constructs make up a family, including the ones that involve blood relations, you know, Um, it calls into question like aspects of, you know, how much you really know your family. You know, I I found myself thinking about that a lot. Does, Does being blood related to somebody guarantee that I know them more or that we will have this legacy be passed on, you know? It's true because most of the characters in the film are not orphans. They weren't born into the world without family. They've actually actively chosen to reject their families for various reasons. So for, for in the case of the young girl, it's uh, abuse in her home. Um, one of the children, it sounds like he was abandoned, you know, and, and, and there are less dramatic reasons as well. I mean, I, I don't want to give it away, but that, you know, there's a character who, who doesn't necessarily come from, um, a broken or abusive home, but it's simply a lack of connection that, that that makes it more appealing to like live in this hovel with you know a bunch of people she just met and kind of fell in love with um, than perhaps a more physically comfortable situation. Yeah, you know this stuff is really making me think a lot about. I mean, for in core culture there there is a, a very uh, prominent attitude of you find your family because people sort of divorce from their families or whatever. But you know, this is making me crave like a creative version of like the drag scene um and and that family in that regard family is the word that we use to describe those scenes because um and like a fictional movie treatment because i know we have shows and i know we have paris is burning but i think someone could do a lot more with this kind of idea um and just like the the notion of like you choose your family as a like political idea even as as a very important and i think in this movie he's getting something really really profound when these people are living outside of the system, not by choice necessarily, but the idea that you can exist outside of the system, you can exist outside of like a nuclear family arrangement and still have intimacy is something that I don't think the system really affords people. Um, you know, it's something that's taken for granted is like you, you have to participate in civic life in a particular way in order to have family ties or family intimacy. And, and these are people who are disproving that. 
um, in a very thorough and I think uh, interesting way. <laughs> I wanted to branch off a little bit on this idea of of, of kind of the you know, queer spaces and creating alternative families um, because I was th- I've been thinking a lot lately about a movie that I also know you love, Frida, which is Home for the Holidays, directed by Jodie Foster, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, oh, I'm loving this already. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a there's a moment in that movie during this like hectic, chaotic, almost nightmarish Thanksgiving, you know, and and, one, and the major conflict that kind of starts everything is that Robert Downey Jr. is the gay brother who's come home and Cynthia Stevenson is kind of like the super conservative older sister. She and her husband, Steve Gutenberg, are like these kind of like awful banker types. Um, and they have never really accepted him. You get this little piece by piece, you get the sense that they're kind of like put off by him. Um, and they have the gigantic falling out of the table and it's very satisfying because the conservative sister gets turkey spilled all over her head and the gravy and it falls it's great it's it's the fantasy that we all want to see but after this happens there's a really short scene where Robert Downey Jr.'s character Tommy is on the phone with his husband who is back in New York or Chicago or wherever he's in some urban space and you see him very briefly talking on the phone it's like this kind of ridiculous looking chic queer gallery looking space but Robert Downey Jr. says to him he says how's my real family and I remember seeing that as a kid and thinking this is like really sad, but also kind of beautiful because like the family as the movie presents it isn't, they're not evil. The parents are doing their best to understand and try to be better people. The sister's pretty terrible, the older sister. But, you know, the film sets up this kind of like, you know, dichotomy. There's the, the, what's real, what's the, re- he considers the other family, his queer friends back in the city, his real family and the people who don't understand him are his fake family, which is sort of the opposite of how we would normally understand it. Yeah, I really love Home for the Holidays. And I, as soon as you brought up this subject, it's the first film I thought of. <laughs> uh, I watch it. I've watched it every Thanksgiving since I was in college and I owned it on VHS and my college roommate introduced me to it. Speaking of chosen family, um, family you build. So it's it's not only a film that's about family, but that um, uh, sort of bonded me to the, the family I made after um, leaving the one I was born into. And now I watch it with my sister. So it kind of, I, I like have taken this t- weird totem with me, uh, which is interesting because I talk about this a lot with the film Breakfast at Tiffany's. Uh, you only realize how dark it is over time and as you age. So there was a lot about the film that didn't totally sink in when I was watching it at the age of 18 or 19. I just thought it was funny. And I was like, their family's quirky. My family's quirky. Um, <laughs> now you watch it and there's, there, there's some incredibly sad moments. And the one that you described, you're, you're right. It's, it's, it's bittersweet. And again, especially when, you know, in, in the specific context of, of being a queer person, being a queer person myself, you, you are just so glad that he has that mm-hmm. in his life. Mm-hmm. And simultaneously feel this like palpable desire that the this blood family has to be with one another, and they they you know they have their own thing, but no one's fully satisfied by it, and that's the feeling that you're left with at the end of the film. It's it's that, and, and not unlike um, um, the Koreeda film, where it it's the ideas that you you grasp onto a couple of moments here and there, and that's really the best you can hope for. And there's also the great moment at the end of Home for the Holidays where near the end where where the father says, I can't wait for goddamn Christmas because you realize everything that just happened is going to happen a few weeks later. <laughs> it's just like the treachery of the calendar. This is why I don't do Thanksgiving and Christmas with family. You just, you do that once. Okay, once a year is fine. It's, it's a good move, yeah. Sometimes you have to split up between two families and 
one's not necessarily better than the other. Yeah, we've talked right. about chosen family, but not about um, a family, a, a not blood family that's created in your life, not necessarily out of choice. It's sort of that's so strange when you're introduced to somebody else's family, and I think that's why um, it's satisfying to do so merely as a voyeur and and a, a as, as a film going audience um, as opposed to when you are dropped into somebody else's. It's funny how I, I know all the ways in which my parents are annoying. So I'm okay with it. <laughs> and when you're dealing with somebody else's um, you're simply not used to the mechanism of that um, unit. Mm. But there is that, that like amazing feeling when you're like a teenager or whatever, and you go to a friend's house and their parents start arguing or something. There's that like feeling at the back of your neck or you're something where you're just like, what is going on in this? Were you witness to something that you probably shouldn't be witness to? But some family, I mean, my family in particular, like they they don't give a fuck. They'll argue in front of anybody. But <laughs> but it like there is this there is this voyeuristic thrill of getting to see that that's how someone else's family is too. I think I'd be so creeped out if I were like at dinner at an extremely functional family's house because I just don't trust that. Well, and what you're describing is a, is getting to be a voyeur. So it's closer to the experience of, of being in a film. And I think I'm I'm thinking about experiences where you're suddenly expected to be part of the unit and you don't know how yet and how yeah, to respond like to people. <laughs> <laughs> like playing, even like playing board games and stuff. Like uh, you know, going going to someone's house for Thanksgiving, or whatever, and playing board games with their family and stuff. There's all this history that you're just not a part of that you can sometimes feel. But that's also what's fascinating about intimacy in that way, that you can be a witness to these ties between people that you don't know, you don't know the stories, you don't know what people are alluding to, but you know passive aggression when you see it. Mm. And and so you're, you're just watching. Um, you're right, this is part of what's amazing about movies, frankly. Well, and I think that's why there's a whole category of family drama that's like the guest who's coming to dinner strain, where like a, a, you, you get to see, you get to enter a family through the eyes of an outsider. Like everything from guest who's coming to dinner to the family stone. Which is, on, <laughs> which is on my list of movies to talk about only because I hate it so much that I can't stop looking at it. Every I'll, time it's on TV, <laughs> it's like a car wreck. I hate the family stone. I was watching the family stone with my husband and a half hour in, he turned to me and said, this was in the theater, he said, I hate this movie. It's like, and then we decided, it, and then we were just on the same page for the rest of the time. It's song. like the bad step sibling of Home for the Holidays. It is. It's it like totally also is. a Thanksgiving film. It also sort of brings in an outsider's perspective to a certain extent. Home for the Holidays has has moments that where it does that with Claire Dane's character, the daughter. Nope, I'm conflating them now. Claire Dane's is in both movies. That's just is that true? Out. Yeah, she's in both movies. How have I never she's clocked Sarah this Jessica before? Jessica Parker's younger sister who comes and saves the family in Family Stone, and she plays Jodie Foster's daughter in Home for the Holidays. So basically, I'm sorry, Holly Hunter's daughter in, in Jodie Foster's in the '90s. The Claire Dane's was er like daughter savior figure. Except for Family Stone was like 2005. <laughs> it was 10 years later, and she was still doing the same thing. Anyway, my point being. It also know. deals no with, with a queer Dane's. with a with a queer character and how the, the, how there's like. Uh, unspoken tensions like how 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 does one person's queerness function in this family dynamic when no one is an actively terrible person or you know that where people are sort of struggling with um coming to terms with that difference family stone has a really great central idea which is that like there's this closed off 
family unit. They have they speak their own language. Literally, there. I mean, there's a there's a deaf son, so they all know sign language. They they tell jokes that no one else could possibly understand. They play games that that only they get the rules. And so, for someone to come in and penetrate that world, it must be really difficult and scary. And it, but the movie pushes it so far in the direction of making the Sarah Jessica Parker, the outsider character, so heinous that it just it it creates this kind of one sided effect that I found really problematic. No, I think it's interesting that families sort of invent their own rituals and their own language. And and that's such a given within the members of the family that it really takes an outsider to come into that unit to activate the drama of a family movie. Like, I can't think of another a, a family film that doesn't introduce a sort of person X, you know, in order to get the ball rolling. Like, even if, you, if you're looking at Kareda's filmography, right, Little Sister... The family has to take in this um, half sister after the death of their father, and that sets the film into motion. Um, like father, like son, it's a dual trade-off of sons who were exchanged uh, erroneously at the hospital at birth. Um, yeah, so it's it's almost like this a- active ingredient of the outside voyeur coming in and then either causing like wreaking havoc or becoming assimilated into the family. Um, yes, and actually the film that I selected to talk about, which we will in a bit, is very much one of those films um, about an outsider in a, in a closed-off family unit functioning very strangely in its own way, um, which I think is a good time for us to take a break. And when we come back, we're each going to discuss the family films that we have selected to talk about um, at more length. See you in a few. This podcast is supported by IFC Films, presenting Wildlife. Carrie Mulligan and Jake Gyllenhaal star in actor Paul Dano's directorial debut, based on the novel by Richard Ford. USA Today raves wildlife is exquisite, with Mulligan giving an awards-worthy performance that crackles and flares. Wildlife opens in New York and Los Angeles on October 19th, in theaters everywhere starting November 2nd. And we're back. We're talking about family films, and um, now is the time where each of us reveals, the big reveal, the family film that we brought today to talk about. And we'll start with Cam. So this wasn't what I originally picked, but I I would like to go with um, The Shining by Stanley Kubrick because all of this talk about spaces um, and home spaces, I think, has really just returned me to that movie, which is predicated on a family that's out of its space. Um, And that is part part of the family drama in this movie is adjusting to these new dimensions. The other thing though, for me, and the reason that this has always resonated for me as just an extraordinarily perceptive movie is the domestic violence, uh, not subtext, (laughs) like, like complete opposite, just, text <laughs> of this movie that is immediately perceptive, not to everyone I've learned. And this is part of what I'm so interested in is that I watching this movie from the second that Shelley Duvall appears on screen, know that something's fucked in this family. Um, and it's, it's in the way that she speaks to the doctor who comes to take care of Danny. Um, it's her in her hesitation over telling the story of um, a time when Jack Nicholson's character, Jack sort of injures their son um, it's the way it's her approach to these stories. It's the peculiarities in her in her performance, um, and it's it's the car ride to the house. It's all of these things. In addition to Jack Nicholson giving one of his eeriest 
um, the weirdest grin, the weirdest sort of demeanor, the the rhythms, the way that he responds to people. It's all very off. But what's interesting to me about this film is that I've I've watched it with other people and realized that it is possible to miss <laughs> to miss some of this. This is why I, I'm, I'm I'm verging on calling it subtext because I think it's it's easy actually to miss these things. Maybe if you don't know what the tells are, I don't know what it is. And I understand that part of the reason that Stephen King doesn't like this movie is because he thinks that it mischaracterizes the original text when I think that actually Stanley Kubrick is understanding something about the original text that maybe, maybe Stephen King doesn't want to face or doesn't think that's what's going on. But or maybe he doesn't also, maybe he, you know, feels an attachment to the writer character in this that he would not like to associate himself with. But there is something to say for um, artist families and and the demands that, you know, the sort of interior life of an artist kind of can put on the people immediately surrounding them. And there's also just something to say for knowing something like domestic abuse when you see it before it happens. Um, and in this movie, wondering being pushed to wonder, you know, what the triggers are for for the real violence um, that really happens in this movie. But as family movies, it's interesting to talk about in this context because, again, it's even though I do also have a very specific sense of this family's home and I know where Danny's bedroom is, I actually don't know where the parents' bedroom is. I don't have any memory of that. Um, You're talking about the home at the beginning of the film yes, before they moved. Like their their apartment. Um, that I'm guessing the Shelley Duvall character did more of the like arranging in because Jack Nicholson does not seem like mod enough or or or, or odd enough <laughs> to have come up with some of the style choices in this home. But but of course, um, of course, the Overlook Hotel, right? Underlook, Overlook, Overlook. Who can even tell anymore? The the Overlook Hotel um, is a character. And thinking about that, I mean, we're all all that we're saying about like this hobble in, in shoplifters and the particularities of that space. I have a very particular sense of this space as well. But this family is lost in this space, and part of their tension is figuring out the space and uncovering its secrets and what its secrets do to their secrets. Um, and it's just such a fascinating movie in that way, and works in so many ways for me. It's really just I rewatched it recently, and was really just sort of blown away by how obvious it was to me that this family was fucked <laughs> from the start. It's not even the house's fault. It's really not the house's fault. The house is just like, you guys are fucked and we're going to fuck it up more. And but, fascinatingly, they're fucked from the beginning. From the beginning. They don't, um, they, from which, the beginning. Which I think is what you mean about the difference with the book. There's the sense of this, right. like, though it's troubled, perhaps, uh, there's like a nuclear unit that's going to be tar- torn apart by these evil forces. Whereas the movie is like, no, these people are screwed up from the beginning. Right. The way they're in that car cramped together talking about the Donner party. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, and and Charlie Duvall's okay. like, look urging Jack to like, could you shut the fuck up about like the Donner? He's like a kid. Could you please stop telling him about people eating each other? But he's relishing these details. He's relishing the violence. And Danny, who's a kid, is curious about it. But Danny's like voice um, that, that, that kind of inner instinct that we're kind of calling a sixth sense in this context, I think is really also just like the instinct of a kid who, who is seen abuse and who has been abused. Um, and, and sometimes I like had strayed from that reading of the movie because I maybe thought that I was reading too much into it, but that really is very clear to me from the start that this kid is sort of dissociating because of things that have happened in this home and that he has an instinct for when more violence is going to come. And he has an instinct about that house and he has, he just, he just knows that this is not going to go well between his parents. It's, it, it, it's the, it's a movie about the failure of patriarchy and he ends up wandering his own maze until he freezes to death. I mean, yeah. searching for his child who he wants to kill. Right, right. Um, 
when the movie Kill List came out, I did an interview um, with Ben Wheatley, and I think there's a similar concept where you see, even before any creepy shit happens, um, there is such tension in the home. There's, like, constant argument, and it's you're on the level of um, the child in some of these scenes, so so you're experiencing and and being triggered, (laughs) you know, uh, about our own childhood memories of when there's tension in the home and how, like, we've all experienced that, and you know something's wrong. And it kind of lets you know they're already fucked. Like you think the family's marked when, you know, a guest appears and and writes a symbol behind the mirror and you don't know what's happening, but clearly that like some some cults things are going to come up, but they're marked before that. You know, they're marked before that because of the way that they interact with one another and how it makes you feel. Absolutely. Um, Well, moving on, Freeha, what did you pick? It's a little different, I think. Yes. And I want to say that before I came to this choice, I was thinking about um, how the Coriata film is is sort of like the rise and fall of a family. It's They're at their most complete when this young girl comes to join them and then there's a dissolution. And, it, and, and then I sort of fixated on dissolution of family stories. And so I considered um, Carol because I think it's the, there's the whole the like b- subplot is about her and her husband's marriage breaking up. And I'm not saying, God, I wish that we focused on the hetero couple here, but, but I, I, I think it's one of the most successful aspects of the film. And then I was thinking about a separation. Um, but I really wanted to uh, talk about a documentary um, because I think that these issues around family, family dynamics and drama come up pretty frequently, even films that are not explicitly about families. Uh, it's, it's like a very, um, potent language to use in documentary like when you're sometimes when you're pitching stories people will say well are you going to go home with their family will I get to see their parents will I get to go in their home like these things are such a, a shorthand for understanding people to see them in the context of their of their family chosen or otherwise and so I chose Grey Gardens which is <laughs> an, ex- an extreme <laughs> extreme classic (laughs) (laughs) two-hander. I come, I I first saw the film in college, like a lot of people, you know, it's like a a, a classic example of, of quote unquote verite um, documentary filmmaking. Um, And I was thinking actually, when you brought up Elisa, the fact that you need to have an, an outsider sometimes in order to uh, experience the family drama in a way that makes sense to you as a viewer, as an outsider, um, yourself. And the fact that in a documentary context, the outsider is in fact the filmmaker. We need <laughs> the Maisels. And it, it's so incredible how there there are moments, you know, I think they're pretty open in the film about um, having a direct relationship with the subjects. They're never never feigning a lack of, they're never feigning neutrality. The, you know, entire sequences are being addressed directly to the filmmakers. They're, they're flirtatious, like the, the relationship is visible. And I sometimes get this feeling like I can see the expression on one of their faces as they're shooting. Like through their in- incredulity or surprise, you're able to experience it better. But I think part of what's enduring about Grey Gardens is um, that idea of, I, th- I, I don't know about, I don't want to speak on behalf of every woman, but myself, and I think a lot of women in my life, there's somewhere in the back of your head, you're like, maybe it'll all go to shit and I'll just move, turn nuts and move in with my mother. Or like, I remember watching this, this movie with my 
younger sister at some point. We're like, what if we turn into this? There's always that sort of looming possibility that because like on on one hand, Hopefully, you know, your family's always there for you, but that is a blessing and a curse. Your family's always there for you, but there may come a time when they're the only ones who are there for you and you no longer have the ability to to fight for other things in your life and you sort of sink back into this place where you came from when you feel that you should be moving forward. And I think that that dynamic of Grey Gardens and and, and the, the um, specter of that possibility is what is part of what makes it so compelling. And also just like this problem that I can't relate to of like a famous family and like mm-hmm. being in the shadow of national myth, like like to to have, to be a part of a family by extension that everyone in America is aware of and they're obsessed with. And you, the two of you are just like off on this island, basically not a part of it, but a part of it and, and fascinating in that way, but cloistered and isolated and sort of bouncing off the walls. Um, it's just like a psych, like psychologically, I just can't imagine, and I've always found this movie really fascinating for this reason. Just what it is like to not be a Kennedy, who's a Kennedy, mm-hmm. you know, and like and like that's part of what the movie just observes, um, and that's part of why I'm I laugh when you say I wonder if I'll ever be this because I don't think you'll ever be that like unless you're like related to royalty in some way I don't know like thankfully (laughs) like thankfully there seems to be this added dimension of of the rest of the family that thank god like I can't relate to because I can't imagine frankly um I I think the the fame and of course it's not it's it's one thing to have a famous relative but to have like a family dynasty is particularly nuts and extreme but I think it's I think on it's it's extreme on a spectrum of things that we can still relate to. For example, like there's always that section of the family. There's always like the black sheep family in your extended family right. who did you, you you can't understand why, you know, when you've all essentially had the same access to the same things, grown up like the same way culturally, they just veer off in their own direction. Um, or I think that sense of um competitiveness like the idea of living under somebody's shadow is a is a pretty common hallmark of family stories um whether it's like you know just feeling competitive with your not famous not kennedy sister or brother or (laughs) um what have you so i think i think that there's a there's a piece there that we understand but we're but but seeing it it's in its extreme form um makes us reconsider it in a new way and there's just always something so strange because specifically about documentary when people do allow the cameras to come into their homes. I, I you you can't help but put yourself in the position you were talking about in the position of the filmmakers for Yeehaw, like kind of gawping behind the camera. You assume, um, but also like I always think, like what if I were one of the people who allowed these people into my house? They do tend to be more eccentric or uh, or um, exhibitionist types, which is, of course, the case of Grey Gardens, was the case with Alan King's A Married Couple, which is an astonishing movie. Um, American Family, that the, the series, the PBS series from the 70s, it seems a lot of documentaries, you know, don't get that much access. But when they do get access to homes, there's usually like some sort of performative reason why they're letting them in there. But it makes you, I mean, accordingly, like in a great documentary like this one, it does make you wonder. I just sit and watch Grey Gardens and rewatch Grey Gardens thinking, so when did Rolling start that day? And when did it end? And what am I not seeing? 
and what are they like when the cameras aren't there, obviously, but also just how long were the cameras there? Are we really getting like the off-camera stuff too? Because the cameras were there so long that there is no off-camera. So off-camera becomes on-camera, that like the, those personas merge in a way. Um, because the shooting, I mean, how long were they there? I'm forgetting. I think it wasn't particularly long. I think, yeah, but I think it was long enough for, I think it was long enough to lose some inhibition. Yes. For sure. And there, and, and according to what I've seen in the movie. <laughs> and as, as, as a filmmaker, you, you know this moment when it happens. The first time you say, I can't believe that this just happened in front of me. I remember not even on a, on a film that I made, um, but I was working on another person's film called um, Journey of a Thousand Miles, um, Peacekeepers. It's about you and Peacekeepers. And uh, the subjects are all Bangladeshi. I'm Bangladeshi. So I know culturally how unusual it is to allow outsiders to see tension in your home. We do not argue in front of other people. This was like an ultimate shame situation in my house. And when this woman returned after a year's posting in Haiti to her husband, they immediately had this like knockdown drag out fight. And I was sitting there. I knew some, I, I couldn't believe it was happening. I didn't want to move. I didn't want to like change the environment in any way. And I think that we recognize that in a finished film also. Something has shifted. Now I'm now I'm inside, perhaps beyond all of our comfort levels. Uh, very true. And speaking of things shifting, I'm trying to do really good segues here. Um, Aliza, the movie you picked is very much about like a family on the cusp of change. Yes, it's very much about a family on the verge of not only um, shifting um, roles within the family and moving on to different phases of life, but also um, within the larger canvas of society, you know, uh, people moving from a sort of a pre-modern world and uh, into a post or into a modern world, I'll say. So um, the movie I picked is Ozu's Equinox Flower, which if you guys have not seen, you should definitely, definitely see. It's one of my favorite films of all time. It's uh, Ozu's first color film. And it is just so beautiful. Um, I'll tell you what it's about first. So the father, who's named Hirayama, um, is a wealthy businessman at a large firm in Tokyo. Um, and he's, he's uh, married to a character played by Kinui Tanaka, and she's amazing in it. And they have three sisters. They, they, have, they have two daughters. And uh, one day, uh, an old classmate of Hirayama's finds him at work and says, you know, will you help me with my daughter? She's kind of gone crazy. She's, you know, we had this whole arranged marriage plan for her. It was going to be perfect. But she ran off with this guy that she fell in love with. And she ran away from home. And Hirayama decides, yes, he's going to go to this uh, bar where she's working to check up on her. Um, and he does, he, he meets her at this incredible looking ramen place outdoors with a bar and everything. So again, with the food and the drinks, um, and they, they start having a heart to heart, you know, she tells him, she thinks that her father is being really stubborn. He's stuck in the past. He thinks his way is the only way. And Hirayama kind of just looks upon her very sympathetically. And he says, you know, maybe there are certain things that you don't understand about your father. But despite that, he ends up leaving her with some money. Um, and he it's not the last time that he checks up on her, basically. Um, however, then 
the similar situation befalls his family. His older daughter ends up falling in love with somebody. And he learns this because her boyfriend um, finds Hirayami at, at his office one day and, and says, can I please talk to you? I'd like to marry your daughter. And before that, he had no idea she was dating. And you get the sense that, A, perhaps because he's such a dominating patriarch, she was kind of afraid to tell him, but B, because he's not home very often and because when he is home, he's, you know, has such an inscribed role that he act, he enacts, you know, with everybody in the family that maybe it, it would have been evident to him had he been a little bit more aware of his family if, if he had known his daughter a little bit better. Um, so he's scandalized and he gr- he grounds her, refuses to let her out of the home and um, and refuses to let her see him again um, and eventually pushes her to the brink of basically she runs away with him. Um, and then Tanaka's character says, well, you're very inconsistent and you're very hypocritical. She calls him out at some point, you know, and um, then the whole family is sort of thrown into upheaval because there is a date that's set for the daughter's wedding. And it becomes a question of whether Hirayama is going to get over um, his um, disdain for how things didn't work out the way that he had planned and attend the wedding, or if he was going to miss his daughter's wedding and sort of create this regrettable situation for everybody. The film is punctuated by a couple of really beautiful trips out of the family We've been talking about this. And one is this trip to Hakone, which is a place I've been to with my own family. It's a beautiful um, dormant volcano just full of uh, outdoor onsens, hot springs. And it's incredibly bucolic. And this was at a time when the family was still a full unit. And they were, you know, but but the father says, you know, I think I'm going to go play golf with the guys today. And Tanaka is like, please don't, I don't ever ask you for anything. And, and, you, and she enacts all the matriarchal, you know, it's a very typical Japanese neighbor, um, family. You know, you, you see her most of the time, she's folding clothes, she's going about very quotidian chores, she's cleaning up, she's going shopping. Um, but this one day she's, she stops and she's like, please don't play golf today. I'm asking you because I have a feeling this might be the last family vacation we ever go on. And he says, okay, he listens to her. And they go and it's just you revel in this incredible scintillating trip that they all take together. You know, the girls um, go boating and the parents um, look on, you know, from a from a beautiful bridge. And you just you're so sort of taken by this moment. But also what Ozu makes you so aware of is the wistfulness of, you know, how how quickly it, it will go away and how you're producible it is you know moments like that that sense of time passing exactly which, um he did so beautifully but it, it's so funny i mean you, you bring up when you bring up an ozu film it, you, you can't help but think of it being like sandwiched between all the other amazing ozu films from from its particular era and he, yeah he was so in that in the 50s i mean they were all great but in the 50s he was so consistently making these family dramas they were all just about all family dramas right and nobody probably of all the filmmakers we're talking about today nobody better understood how a unit functions or doesn't function this one stands up in my mind because he um shows particular sympathy towards the the children Uh, you know you think about him and you know 
Yeah, in the same way that there's a sociological investigative quality to Koreeda's films. Um, you get the sense that Ozu is working through some of these notions and, and voyeuristic notions also through his own cinema because you look at this guy, his life was, you know, he was a single man for life. He was a chain smoker, tragic alcoholic, <laughs> had a very crass sense of humor apparently. Um, and, you know, there's something very moving that's always haunted me, which is that on his tombstone is just the kanji word for for nothingness, emptiness, mu. Um, and so you really get the sense that he is, um, you know, he's exploring the artifice of um, the family as a construct, but also setting up, you know, this this very strict um social construction and then and then letting the emotions sink into that and letting the experiences um, flow in um, and and very quietly in the same way that Koreeda does he just breaks your heart with you know the the sort of moments between characters that develop um, and yeah because of its sort of more progressive ideas and because of its sympathy towards the young girls in the film um, I think of it as sort of a standout and also you know he was kind of a conservative filmmaker technically you know he didn't make a, a talkie until years into when Japan started making um, sound films and also you know he held out for a long time before making color films um, and he only made this color film because Shochiku the studio made him do it um, but it became just the perfect confluence of, of events that led to this perfect movie. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. If, if people, most people have seen Late Spring and Tokyo Story, you know, dig a little deeper into those 50s films, Equinox Flowers. Are particularly yeah, beautiful. this one's not as heavy as those mm -hmm. films. Too. Yeah. Well, my film is also from a master filmmaker, though not a filmmaker who made a lot of films about families, actually. This is kind of like the major film he made about family. Um, it's Orson Welles, who's been in the news again recently, um, is The Magnificent Ambersons, which is a film that I think extremely high of. I think that I just watched it again last night after many times. I don't I'm not gonna say that like if you had all the missing footage it would be as good as Citizen Kane I think it is as good as Citizen Kane I think it's as astonishing as Citizen Kane in its current bodlerized form so just imagine what it would be like otherwise um if that horrible thing hadn't happened to it but um it's this I picked it not just because it's a movie about family and I think it has a lot of things to say about family and as a very smart adaptation of the book by Booth Tarkington it's actually very faithful um but also because it's a movie that my family loves and I grew up love like watching it with my family. My father loved the Magnificent Ambersons, and he was, you know, he liked movies. My mom was more of the movie person. She loves it too, but he had like a handful of movies that he loved. There were only like five, <laughs> and he would bring them up. I'm talking about like things you would think, like he loved the Shawshank Redemption. Most dads love the Shawshank Redemption. Dad movie. But Such a dad movie. he also loves the Magnificent Ambersons. He would say, it's time to watch Ambersons again. He would just call it Ambersons. <laughs> he loved Our Town as well, which is which is like the anti-Ambersons, which came out um, two years before. But this is, so this is um, it's something that I've puzzled over a lot, why it's a film that my father loved so much and why my fam why it was a family film that we watched, because it's such a dark, pessimistic, fatalistic film about family. Um, 
there's an intimacy of it. There's a darkness to it. A, there's a, like a, the self-destruction of that family is, is something to just behold. And it just keeps getting darker and darker as you watch it. Like even that opening line and in, in those days they had time for everything, which is, it's, it's the line is, is it's a, it's a, a line that kind of like makes it floods you with this feeling of nostalgia, but then when you think about what it means, it, it has all these separate meanings. There's, it's talking about cotillions and serenades and balls, and he's, you know, the the it's from the book, and the line is supposed to evoke, um, you know, white suburbia, late nineteenth century. But I think why it resonates is because when all of us think of our childhoods, we think in those days we had time for everything. It doesn't matter where we came from. When you're a child, you have time for things, and that disappears as you get older. And the movie is so much about the disappearance of, of everything, right? Um, encroaching technology. I was watching it uh, again last night, and like everything they were saying about how the automobile is coming and it's going to change the way our brains work. I was like, oh, that, that's happening right now with the technology that we're dealing with now. I think our brains have literally literally been rewired. Um, but the way the film functions is that um, there's the, the Ambersons and uh, also the Minifers. It's the Minifers married the Ambersons. And they're so obsessed with maintaining standards and maintaining their position and their wealth in the community that they kind of just block out the world. And this is carried through mostly by this um i guess it's an, he's more like an anti-hero he's, he's the main character but he's kind of the villain he's george george minifer um who's so desperate to um hold the family's honor that he protects his mother from the things that she actually needs and wants like she she the man that she loves he, he who is actually the inventor of the automobile um he keeps him from her and this is kind of like the beginning of the downfall of the family. So it, he's like that interloper. We're talking about like, who's the person that tries to enter the family, but because they don't understand the rules of the family, they can't function within it. And um, I just find it so incredibly frightening and moving and strange every time I watch it. And uh, like Wells himself always claimed that he was like overly nostalgic and that he always yearned for the past, but that he hated that about, about himself. So he's like distanced from it. And the movie has that like, constant sense of nostalgia that the film is also like moving away from and it it creates a very strange um feeling and then one other thing i wanted to say about the film was the this particular relationship in the film between george played by tim holt and aunt fanny played by agnes moorhead is one of the great joys and terrors of all cinema because I don't. I, I. I can't believe that it's even in a hollywood film of the 40s the way they speak to each other the way they mock each other it's a great example of a family kind of knowing itself so well and knowing each other so well that they feel open to say anything to each other. You very rarely see people in in classical Hollywood cinema, probably still now, but certainly back then, out openly mocking each other's voices, the things they say, the way they talk, and all the while doing it in these like shadowy stairwells, whispers in the night, gossip. Um, it's really, really a sad, scary, and hilarious movie all at once. And I just, I, I mean, I could watch the George and Fanny scenes just like on repeat. Agnes Moorhead is like a goddess. That's where my mind goes immediately when everyone mentions, mentions this film. It's just that, yeah, the the stairwell, the shadows, and Aunt Fanny. I have a grandma named Fanny, so that's probably part of it. But also, their interactions are really wild. I'm trying to wrap my mind around your family watching this movie, though, like more than once. Like, I made my Constantly. family watch The Shining because it was the first time any of us had seen it, and we've never made that mistake again. <laughs> I'm, curious about, I'm curious about what is it like to sit and watch this with 
relatives given the subject and also it's just so dark i, I don't get it yeah I, I i don't know i think it's obviously not a feel-good film but i think i think it's maybe they saw it as sort of like instructional like that's not the way to behave <laughs> Our family doesn't do those things, so we'll be okay. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there's something satisfying about... I mean, the movie is structured around the idea of this kid getting his comeuppance when he grows up, and this happens. When will when will George get his comeuppance? It's darker and darker. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's satisfying to see like a villain get what they deserve, even though the movie doesn't let you enjoy it. Um, I wanted to ask Aliza and Cam if they have movies that are special to their families, things that you watch as a family. Coming to America... Oh. My grandmother's favorite movie. Yeah. A movie that I have seen millions of times. And probably The Color Purple, even though like that's one that like I can't remember us all watching it together. Oh Only gosh. a few times all together, but we've all seen it so much that it's a part of our vocabulary. Same that's true of my family too. The color purple, purple. on repeat. Like I can't I can't be in the same room with my mom when it's on because I cry so much that we can't like it's really, <laughs> really tough. And my brother knows yeah. lines and we know lines and it, it's it's a tough one. I love it so much. Your family likes dark movies. Yes, like tearjerkers, <laughs> tragedies, yeah. horror movies. This is really random because I did not grow up watching movies with my my family at all. But one time I brought home a screener of um, Oxhide and wow. somehow convinced my mother to sit down and watch it with me. Um, she, Her favorite film is like, Farewell, my concubine. You know, she's like, she's like, uh, that's, a, uh, that's a good, that's a, a good mom. Film. True. It's like such piano, also the mom film. Oh, oh yeah, totally. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. like that. Harvey that... Keitel is a mom. <laughs> I'm gonna say yes, but you're, these are pretty like elevated mom films. I'm just gonna say it. The family concubine and the We're piano are like pretty. Moms. They're pretty like R-rated movies. But go ahead. Modern moms. Oh, she also she loves Center Stage because she loves Maggie Chung. But um, I, one hilarious thing was, you know, she she took one look at the screener. And she was like, I've never heard of these people. She, for her, cinema equal like good cinema equals like capital P prestige, right? Especially with these like overproduced Chinese um, films. And she's like, I've never heard of this person. Who is she? So we sat down and we started watching. And you know, if you if you recall, like the first shot of that movie is incredibly underexposed and it's very still they're all lying in bed together in this like little shack of a home like next to a railroad in in um, the outskirts of Beijing and my mom's like no something something's wrong with this disc it's not working it's stuck <laughs> it was such a mom moment Did it get but better with after oxide that? and I just thought that was so cute I had to explain no that's just the way the movie is <laughs> and then she had to be like why why would you do this and I had then I had to pause the movie to just be like hey we're not doing this we'll talk after and uh, she ended up really enjoying the film. You know, I love how Liu, the filmmaker, just allows her parents to play themselves. And they are. They're so confessional with each other. And they're so hilarious with each other. And they have such an odd, like, business, you know. But for my mom, who lives in China, it's actually she knows people who do do that for a living. So for her, that wasn't the weird part about the movie. But she'd just never seen, um, you know, sort of quote-unquote realistic portrayal of a Chinese family in this way. So it was fascinating watching that with her. And what's yours, Friha? Yes. Oh. Um, so my mother also also loves um, very depressing films. We watched a lot of, like, 
Indian neorealist films from like the 40s and like Satyajit Ray movies. But um, of of those, the one that's stuck with my family is Umrao Jan, um, which is a really beautiful black and white Bollywood movie. Um, uh, and it sort of deals with like class and expectations of women. It's like a secretly feminist film about like two young girls who were who were um, close growing up and one of them is a courtesan and becomes a dancer, which was like considered a very low profession in those times. Um, and one of whom uh, marries into a very wealthy family. So I, it kind of, I mean, we enjoyed watching Hindi and Bengali movies together. But I also think it's interesting because my, um, my dad worked in reproductive health and dealt a lot with sort of like uh, – women's status in the world, particularly in the countries that we were from and lived in. We were three sisters <laughs> in my family. So I think that's that's part of it. My my younger sister like went on to study dance and wrote a paper on Umrajan and and sort of like this like, conflation of the, the the like dancer and the prostitute and <laughs> in like old um Indian culture. So there so that's one that we come back to, but then the other is Boomerang. My family loves wow. Boomerang, wow. and we and it's the other movie we watch every Thanksgiving. Why? And my why dad's no longer around. He was like kind of the biggest proponent, so it's just like me and my sisters and my mom like watching Boomerang, and like she generally kind of does not love seeing sexual material or profanity with us. So she just like feigns temporary deafness when these things happen so she can enjoy. Yeah. So she can um, mostly just um, the Grace Jones scenes. Everything else is like, oh. okay. Like she can handle Eartha Kitt level. She can't handle um, right. uh, Grace Jones level is my mom's litmus test of like, is this okay? There's also a, fi- uh, a film that I joke tore my family apart. Uh because it was too explicit for us to all watch together. It's a movie called Late Marriage. Oh, yes. Which is an Israeli family drama and deals with, with I think, for, for one thing, it, it brought up a lot of um, issues that uh, were sources of tension in my family. Discussions around, like, marrying somebody outside of your religion. Uh, yeah, sort, sort of... Um, diaspora conflict type stuff. Uh, But there's also, it also contains one of the like longest and most explicit and real to this day sex scenes that I've ever seen. It's like 20 minutes. She's like, you know, they're, they talk, talk dirty to each other. She's like sopping up bodily liquids after where like, go get me a dish towel or whatever. And the entire time my older sister was like clutching my arm with her nails and she leaned over and whispered, I'm going to, Kill. <laughs> like everyone we were all so uncomfortable this was sort of um sold as like my uh, my big fat greek wedding type movie by it was, you it came no okay by evil advertisers and false trailer makers i should have called the better business bureau it was it came out around the same time my my, my mom wanted to go see my big fat greek wedding it wasn't playing at a at a good time so i was like i know i'll pick a movie that's going to be just as satisfying for everyone and then it was the opposite. It was the brown bunny. It was a real bait and switch. And when, when we walked into the parking lot afterwards, I was about, I tried to turn to my parents to apologize. And my mom just went, don't talk about it. <laughs> well, only to end on a uh, less graphic note. Uh, one of my 
favorite memories of seeing a movie together in the theater with my family was on Christmas Day because, you know, Jewish people go to the movies and eat Chinese food on Christmas Day. So in 1994, uh, we went to see Gillian Armstrong's Little Women, which is a masterpiece, I may think now. And we loved it so much that it became... In, and my dad also loved Little Women. That was one of his favorites. And it became part of the rotation of films that we watched as a family. So um, I want to thank all of you so much for being here. This was great. Enjoy whatever holidays you do. If you're with family, if you're not with family, we're your family, your film comment family. Ah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> uh, see you next year. You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comment. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle.